If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1, <clears throat> and as you're, as you're turning to 1 Samuel, uh, one of the greatest joys in my life has been to uh, read Christian biographies of learning how it is that God works in people's lives, uh, though he works differently, it's just exciting to see him. And uh, I would encourage you to find a good Christian biography to read. Uh, in fact, I was looking at the library in the back, and they have Corey Ten Boom's uh, The Hiding Place. That's a great one. Uh, there's a number of them back there. So uh, I would also encourage you to your right or to your left this morning is a biography that God is currently writing, sitting right next to you. And make sure you're reading those. You know, make sure you're getting to know one another, loving one another, because it's amazing, as I've just got to know some of you, what God is doing here in Cumberland and uh, what he's doing in each one of our lives. So this morning we'll be looking at Hannah, who I have to admit is one of my favorite people in all of Scripture. Uh, though I haven't read about Hannah in, in a few years, so it's been a joy just familiar, familiarizing myself with the text. Uh, but before we get into the word, if we can open up in a word of prayer. Father, as we worship you, as we praise you, uh, Lord, we just offer our hearts right now, and we offer our minds, we offer everything, Lord, and uh, the sacrifice of praise, because you are worthy, and Lord, we realize that you've given us your word, and so God, would you just help our hearts to be receptive, God, whatever your spirit wants to do this morning, through your word, we pray that we would receive, Lord, that our hearts would be good soil this morning. Help us with distractions, Lord. Help us to just put aside the cares of this world so that we can focus on you and you alone. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to give us a little bit of background, uh, our, the time frame that we're looking at right now is 1080 B.C., and these are dark times for the nation of Israel. Uh, if you recall, after Joshua had led the Israelites into the promised land, and that very generation of Joshua's, once they passed away, the next generation did not know the Lord. Isn't that tragic? People who experienced the hand of God crossing, you know, the previous generation crossing the Red Sea, Joshua's generation crossing the Jordan, going into the Promised Land, God fighting their battles, and yet they did not hand their faith down to their children, and their children forgot about the Lord. They just didn't know him. And what you see is that lawlessness abounded. You see that idolatry also abounded uh, because the Canaanites, many of them were still in the land, and the Israelites began to worship their gods. And so God would see, you would see in the book of Judges, uh, Israel would worship these other gods, Baal and others. They would become in bondage to those gods, lowercase g, of course. And they would cry out to the Lord. And the Lord would hear him, and he would send judges to rescue them. And they'd be good for 40 years, 80 years, and then they'd forget about the Lord again. And they'd go through this cycle of idolatry, bondage, crying out to the Lord, deliverance. Idolatry, bondage, crying out to the Lord, and deliverance. It sounds like, unfortunately, a lot of Christians' lives, where the Lord reveals himself to us, and we're doing okay for a while, and then we forget about him, and then things go sour pretty quickly, don't they? Um, but praise to the Lord when we cry out to him, he hears us. And it was a dark time for Israel. They were judges, but yet in those days, it says at the end of Judges, there was no king in Israel, 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so it was a subjective society. What's, what's right to me is what's right to me. What's right to you is what's right to you. And don't judge me, I won't judge you. Sound familiar? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, even the priesthood we'll see is corrupt. Things were that bad. And prophetically, it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And so, in a sense, it's dark times. God appears to be silent. And that is our setting as we get to verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathahim, Sophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu. And as I read that this morning, I couldn't help think of Tofu, right? I heard that's his second cousin. Um, my boys got a kick out of this in the earlier service. You know, we, we tend to, as Christians to name our kids sometimes Bible names. We got Michael, Jesse, and Isaac upstairs right now. And those are pretty popular names, but if you really want to impress people with Bible knowledge, to Tohu is the way to go. So I don't know if anyone's expecting here this morning, but just a suggestion. Tohu, the son of Suf, the Ephraimite, and he had two wives, and of course that's speaking of Elkanah here. He had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And so notice the first thing that the, the word describes about Elkanah this morning, and that is that he had two wives. And I, some of the guys here are probably chuckling. Uh, more responsibility than we're able to bear, amen? Um, God knows we have a hard enough time loving one wife sufficiently as Christ loves the church, let alone two. And that speaks of our own hearts, but... A lot of people would look at this and they would say, well, the Bible condones polygamy. They would say, look at it. Here's a godly man and he has two wives. And yet what the Bible is doing here is it's just showing us a fact. It's showing us a reality because we know in the book of Genesis chapter two, what does it say? It says that, that the two shall become one, right? That is God's design for marriage is that two become one, not three, not four, not five, two become one. And we also know that his ideal is that a man and woman. And uh, we, all, we see that Jesus alludes to this blueprint in Matthew 19.5 as he's being debated about divorce and his opinion of it, as he points them back to Genesis. And I would encourage you, every major doctrine, if, if you're going through the Bible, I believe you can find every major doctrine in Genesis because it's all there. It's, it's his beginning. And remember... This is a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they weren't so much concerned about what does the law say? What are we supposed to do in relationships? And if you take God's word out of the equation, guess what? Anything goes, right? I mean, if you don't have a foundation to stand upon, if you don't have a standard, then you will go which, whatever way you feel like going. And you know, we see that happening today in our culture, don't we? Where marriage is being redefined. And, you know, it, it's very sad because we see the ramifications of where that's going to take us. 
And, and I'm no prophet, but I believe as I look at the situation of marriage today, I believe it's going to lead to polygamy. I'm not a prophet. I mean, don't quote me on that as far as saying it's definitely going to happen. But I can tell you, I was listening to a very prominent person uh, from Hollywood, and a younger girl, you would know her name if I told you. And she was just talking about her relationships. And she said, well, I like men, I like women. I'm, I think I'm going to have one of each. And it was actually applauded. Like, it was actually, wow, you know, this is so cutting edge. <laughs> Not realizing it's been around for um, pretty much since mankind. But don't be mistaken. Just because the word of God's showing us that, that Elkanah has two wives, don't be mistaking that it's condoning this. We're going to see today... It, <laughs> just not a good not a good idea it, it doesn't work practically notice also we're introduced to these two wives one is Hannah whose mean whose name means grace and I would argue that boy she sure lived out that word what a beautiful picture of grace that Hannah will be for us this morning and she's probably Elkanah's first wife she's notice that she's mentioned first here uh, and what most commentators believe probably happened is that Hannah could not have children, and so Elkanah goes to the next, next girl up, so to speak. You know, come off the bench, and we're going uh, to try to have children similar to what Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar and Ishmael. And so he most likely, after Hannah could not give birth, finds uh, Penina to also be his wife. And notice how these two women in your text are described. What is it that sets these two women apart? Notice that the main thing that he wants us to see here is that Hannah had no children. And, and this is very, very significant for us to understand the rest of the text because in this culture, to be childless was a reproach. Um, remember in the New Testament when Elizabeth found out that she would be giving birth and she was well advanced in years and she would have birth to John the Baptist. Remember what she said about the Lord. She said, the Lord looked on me and took away my reproach among the people. Because in this society, I mean, we realize in our society, women want to get pregnant. There's this innate desire to have children, to have a little baby, right? You see women and you see them with a little baby and all the women just flock around that child. And it's something really interesting to behold. You know, guys, they're, once the kids get a little bit older, we'll kind of toss the kids around. But women just love babies. I mean, not that I don't love babies. I love babies too, just not maybe as much as women. Uh, or my wife. Um, but there's a reproach here. There's something that is so much deeper than just wanting to have kids. And it's societal. It's, it's because they would have viewed this as a curse or a sin on Hannah's part. Uh, and, and there's several reasons why. Number one, remember at the book of Genesis again, what did God tell Adam and Eve? He said, be fruitful and multiply. And so that was God's command. And as a good Israelite, you are going to then take that command and make it happen. Number two, based on Deuteronomy 7.14, they believed that having children was based on their obedience to the Lord. Because this is what Deuteronomy 7.14 says. It says, you shall be blessed above all the peoples. It's speaking to Israel. There shall not be a male or female barren among you. And that's a conditional verse there. And so as an Israelite, they would look at a woman who can't conceive and they would assume something has to be wrong with you. This is your fault that you're not bearing children. Imagine what that would do to Hannah, spiritually speaking. 
I wonder, did she carry that guilt that was, would have been placed upon her by society? And did she bring that guilt before the Lord? It was also important, as it is today, for a family name. You want your name to carry on, and so if there's no children, the name ceases to exist. Um, financial security. How many here realize there was no social security or pension plan in those days? Your pension plan were your children, and you would, uh, you would need them to provide for you as you got older. And that's why in the book of James, when it talks about widows and orphans, you see all throughout scripture, God is concerned about the widow, the orphan. Why? Because they don't have anyone to provide for them, to be there for them. And so there's financial security. And last but not least, this is the kicker for Hannah. Penina does have kids with Elkanah, but she doesn't. So whose fault is it, in a sense, that she can't get pregnant? It's not his. It's hers. And so that just gives us an idea, as the text shows us, it points us to these two women, these two wives, Hannah and Penina, and it, it shows us that distinction. Hannah had no children, but Penina did have children. Verse 3. And this man, Elkanah, went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And I, I do want to point out something because, you know, we're, we're mentioning the fact that he has two wives. This verse in verse 3 clearly shows us that this is a godly family. Remember, a lot of the Israelites are worshiping idols at this point. They're not following the Lord as prescribed. And yet this man is faithful every year to go to Shiloh, which is where the, the tabernacle would have been at this point. It was not in Jerusalem yet. And so he brings his family here. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it's prescribed that they go three times a year to the tabernacle. And he comes here. Think about it. He is coming probably from a corrupt religious society and he's coming to the tabernacle to meet the Lord. And the text tells us that the priests there were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, it doesn't tell us about them until later on in 1 Samuel, but this is what God tells us about these two guys who are running the, the operation. It says they are, were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. So the very priests who are offering up sacrifices, who are supposed to be helping people connect with God, don't even know him. That's how bad it is. It says they made those giving an offering to actually break the Lord's word. And so when people would bring their offerings there for the Lord, these two priests were so corrupt, they would cause people to actually go against what the Lord had prescribed. And it, it says that the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So it became a chore to go into God's house, if you will. It became a stumbling block for people to actually connect with God. And I wonder how many churches today become a stumbling block to the Lord. For people, people who are tired of this world, they're tired of the selfishness, they're tired of the chaos, the greed and everything else. They step foot in a church and guess what that church wants? Nothing but sometimes money, right? There's three offering plates turned around and you're pressured to give or you turn on Christian television. You know, I can't begin to tell you how many people have come to me and said, I, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I see those people on TV. All they want is your money. They're no different from the world. 
And as people are leaving the world, trying to come here and worship the Lord, they're seeing this place is no different from the world. And it becomes a chore. It becomes a problem. People actually abort it. They couldn't stand coming here. They probably dreaded this every year. Oh, we have to go up because the Lord prescribed it. We have to do this. It, it would become a chore. And finally, we see that these guys, they would lay with women here at the tabernacle, having illicit relationships with the women who would come to honor the Lord. It's a horrible place that he's coming, but he's honoring the Lord, isn't he? You know, it reminds me when Jesus came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. What did he do? He drove out those money changers, didn't he? And so, unfortunately, sometimes not a lot changes. The enemy finds a way to get into the house of God, I believe, to distract people from the real thing. And it's, a thing, it's something for us, isn't it, to ask ourselves, Lord, am I ever causing anyone to stumble when it comes to the things of the Lord? You know, where you work, maybe you're the only Christian. Maybe you're the only Bible someone will read at this point. Are you representing Christ to those who he's put in your life? Or are people saying, well, this person's no different from anyone else, man. They're doing the same thing. They're cutting corners. They're, you know, doing all the things that everyone else does. People are watching, amen? Some of you might have watched people who you knew were Christian and you wanted to see, is this person different? Are they set apart? Are they, you know, are they the real thing? Verse 4. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Notice that word, all. <laughs> More than one. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And so as part of the offering, they would actually take part of the meat from the offering, and it would be sort of a fellowship meal that they would enjoy with one another. Uh, and this fellowship meal, typically, however many children that you have is the portions that you would divvy out. And so Penina is there with all of her kids lined up. You can just picture it in your eye, right? In your mind's eye. All these kids and, and Elkanah's there just, here's for you, here's for you, here's for you, here's for you, here's for you. And Hannah's right over here on this side just watching this every single year. Just sitting there alone. Now we do see that Elkanah offers to her a double portion because he loves her. Another reason why I believe this is probably his first wife, because she has his heart. See, he actually uses Penina for children, but he loves Hannah. She's his. And there's a part of this verse at the end of verse 5 that's very difficult, I think. It says, the Lord had closed her womb. Did you notice that? That it was the Lord who closed her womb. You know, that's, that's a hard saying. That's a hard saying for women who can't get pregnant, isn't it? And it's especially hard, because I minister to a lot of guys coming off the streets, it's especially hard when you see a lot of women on the streets and drugs, homeless, getting pregnant just constantly. And you see married Christian couples who love the Lord, who love one another and can't get pregnant. And it, it's a struggle even to this day when, when, uh, when these things can't take place. And no doubt it was difficult for Hannah. It was a trial for her. In verse 6, notice how Pen Penina is described here. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable. Why? Because the Lord had closed 
her womb. See, Penina didn't get the affection from, from uh, Elkanah, did he? Or did she? She knew that his heart was with Hannah. And so she's going to use anything she has, any kind of ammo that she can get against Hannah, she's going to use it against her. And so she knows she has all the kids. She has them lined up there. And every year when they would come here for the feast, she would remind Hannah of her barrenness. But it wasn't just barrenness that she reminded her of. In the, in the original language, it's very clear that she's pointing to the fact that the Lord is the one who closed her womb. In other words, it's not just a physical thing, Hannah. This is spiritual in nature. I'm accepted by God. I've got all these children. Let me read to you Deuteronomy and tell you what it says. He's closed your womb, and it got personal, and it got ugly, to the point that she's called what? She's called her rival or adversary. And again, is polygamy good? <laughs> I don't see it working too well here, right? Because you have two women that want the same thing. And they can't get the same thing. And so the claws are out at this point, though we don't see Hannah retaliating, do we? And so we get to verse 7. And so it was year by year. And you could just say year by year by year by year by year. This is something that every single year is taking place. When she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. This is a season of suffering, isn't it? This isn't just like a one-time thing, difficult situation. My car breaks down and I'll take it to the mechanic and even though I can't afford it, we'll make it happen. This is year after year after year after year. That means every year Hannah will go home brokenhearted with nothing changing except having a, a rival provoking her, having a culture, a society looking at her down downward. It's a long season. And in verse 8, when Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? <laughs> See, she's looking for comfort and understanding of a husband. And look what he gives her, right? Notice those three questions, why, why, why? I think that had to be a dagger into Hannah's heart every time he'd ask her, why, why, why? You should know why, right? In fact, we do see he does know why, because look at his response. <laughs> Am I not better to you than ten sons? So he understands why she's sad. He understands why she's heartbroken. But look at me. <laughs> Am I not enough for you? See, he's not stupid, he's just insensitive. I have a hard time as a husband reading this text because I think of the times, especially early on in my, in my marriage, to when my wife might be going through something and just to make her try to smile or I take it personal when she's down and I think, well, you know, let me try to make her happy, let me try to make her happy and in fact, I only make matters worse because I'm not sensitive to what she's going through, right guys? Who here has to work on sensitivity as a man <laughs> towards our wife? Uh, we, we, we got that thing down. Don't worry, we'll get to the women here in a minute. 
Why are you weeping? Why are you not eating? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better than ten sons? And before we look at her response, you know, sometimes I like to look at the scriptures and I like to realize it's not what people say sometimes as much as what they don't say. If you were in Hannah's shoes at this point, just putting yourself in her place, how would you respond? You have society against you. You have an adversary who can't stand you, who has all the kids. You have none. Your husband doesn't understand you. I mean, wouldn't this be a temptation for her to get on Twitter or get on her phone and be like, he just doesn't understand me. He just doesn't get it. My husband, he just doesn't get it. She could have dishonored her husband here, right? She could have threw his name through the mud because of this misunderstanding her, because he just didn't get it. And this is a huge temptation. You know, she could have grown bitter at this point. She could have grown bitter towards the Lord, because remember, the text says it was the Lord who closed her womb. She could have said, you know what, I've tried to serve you faithfully for all these years. And if she had a legalistic relationship with the Lord, where she thought, if I do good, then he will bless me with this child, that's a difficult place to be. And isn't that what most religion teaches? Like, you do good, and then God's going to bless you? And therefore, if you aren't blessed, it's because you're not doing something good, right? It just reminded me this morning of a friend of mine who, his wife got pregnant. He's a full-time evangelist and a godly couple. And they were told early on in the pregnancy that this child would probably not make it. And they were praying. Of course they were praying. They were asking God for a miracle. They believed he could do a miracle. But the concluding prayer that this couple prayed was, Lord, not our will but yours be done. And can you believe after she gave birth to a stillborn, there were people from the Word of Faith movement who condemned them for not having enough faith in the midst of their grief and suffering, in the midst of it, like right after this child passed and she gave birth to that child. How painful that had to be to give birth to a stillborn baby, this baby that you would look for for years possibly. They were older in in the years too, so it's not like she was 20 years old and can have a lot of children. But that's what religion does. It looks at people and it condemns them because it's viewing this as, I do this, God does this. And it's a temptation for Hannah. It's a temptation for her to grow bitter towards God, her husband, Penina. Yet we don't see any of that here, do we, in verse 9. Notice her response to an insensitive husband. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. Verse 10, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. What did she do with her burden? She cast it at the feet of the Lord, didn't she? She cried out to him with every ounce of her being. In fact, when it tells you in there in verse 10, that she was in bitterness of soul, okay? In Scripture, every time something like this appears, relief of any kind is never found from other human beings. It's only found in God. That when someone is so bitter of soul, you know, there's a point that we get that words just don't suffice, right? Like when you are so broken, you are so beat down by the world, It doesn't matter what people say, you need to have an encounter with the Lord. You need more than what any person can possibly give you. In fact, sometimes I think we put expectations on people, don't we? 
and we expect things from people. And when they don't give us those expectations, we respond. And sometimes that shows us maybe we're expecting too much. If her husband was her idol here, she would be broken because he's the last person she has. Everyone else looks at her as the problem, as the reproach. Society does. Her, her rival does. Her husband's the last person to try to relate to her, and he doesn't get it. And if he's on a pedestal that only God belongs, I believe she'd walk away from the faith at this point. And you see people do that because their priorities aren't right. And yet she turns to the Lord in her brokenness. And in her suffering, beautiful fruit is produced. Verse 11. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. Notice how she's responding to herself as the maidservant. But will give your maidservant a male child. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Now, what's interesting about this portion of scripture, notice in verse 11, how she responds, how does she, what does she call the Lord in verse 11? She responds to him as, O Lord of hosts, okay? In verse 3, we saw the author calling him the Lord of hosts, but here in verse 11, this is the first time in all the Old Testament that any person will call God the Lord of hosts. Very significant. And that means that he is the sovereign Lord of hosts of the stars, of angelics, of angelic hosts, of the armies of Israel. He's the God of the universe. He's all-powerful. He's almighty, right? And you have this poor, broken woman, this maidservant, who sees in the midst of her suffering the all-powerful God. Isn't that powerful? That in her brokenness, she sees God as high and lifted up. And commentator Robert Bergen said this, he said, Pain made her a theologian. No other woman, no character in scripture prior to Hannah had ever used the term to address the Lord. And you see that in her brokenness, she sees who she's praying to, and she makes a vow to the Lord. And that's very important we understand. This is a vow. This is not a bribe. She's not trying to bribe the hand of God as religious people do, saying, Lord, if you do this, then I'll serve you. You know, if you just give me a wife, then I'll be pure. You know, we, we do these things that we try to manipulate the hand of God sometimes. That's not what she's doing here. She's making a vow to the Lord. This is a promise that she's making, saying, Lord, if you give me a son, this is my vow. He's yours. He's yours. No razor will touch his head. He's going to be a Nazarite. No wine, no drinking of wine, no getting near to dead bodies. And by making this vow to the Lord, this is what's significant about this for Hannah. She's giving up two things here. She's giving up an emotional fulfillment as a mother because you're going to see she has to give him up when he's weaned. She has to give him up still as a, what we would consider to be a toddler. And she has to leave him behind. Mothers, <laughs> what sacrifice, right? To give up a three-year-old child and to walk away from that child and trusting that child to a corrupt priesthood because she saw the Lord as the Lord of hosts. And so she gave up that emotional fulfillment as a mother, day in and day out. She would also give up the financial security that a son would have provided. And in the midst of a corrupt nation, a defiled tabernacle with a broken heart, Hannah reaches out to the Lord of hosts. 
And while her husband went to Shiloh to offer a sacrifice at the altar, Hannah brought a sacrifice of a surrendered and a broken heart. And she fulfilled Psalm 51 beautifully. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Verse 12. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought that she was drunk. And this is an indictment against Eli here, because there were probably people getting drunk, including his sons. It shows you the atmosphere that was involved, because the average person would see someone weeping and crying out, and they would see this person's broken, and yet that's not what he sees here. He's that blinded at this point, and he thinks that she's drunk. And yet she's praying, and she's so broken, she can't even get the words out of her mouth. Her heart is so grieved. John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, said, In prayer it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. And so Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, Oh, no, my lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him." And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And so what we witness here is an amazing thing that takes place. Through this wicked priesthood, God will speak to this broken woman as she poured out her heart to him. And she receives that word, doesn't she? Because notice how she leaves there. She puts away the tears, and she walks away to her family. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. That's beautiful. Now, real quick, that doesn't mean that God forgot her, right? Just to make sure that we understand what it means when it says remembered her. The Lord wasn't like busy with Penina and working really hard to give her all these children and then he's like oh wait a minute I forgot Hannah right it's not that kind of remember where he forgot and don't forget year after year Hannah had probably prayed here right year after year she would go brokenhearted to Shiloh and she would leave brokenhearted no doubt she had been praying for this child year after year after year and yet God had not answered her And that is how it is for some of us sometimes, right? You're praying for things. Sometimes the Lord answers prayer just like that. Especially I remember as a new believer, it was just sometimes I'd pray and the answer would be right there. And then you go through seasons of praying, sometimes for years for things, never to see an answer. Well, she had prayed for year after year after year. And here's my thought. Could it be that God was waiting on Hannah to have her heart right where he wanted her? Because do you realize that this son who will be born will be Samuel, who is the last judge, the first prophet, and the man to anoint the first two kings of Israel? 
And perhaps, just perhaps, he had to wait for his perfect timing to where her heart aligned with his. And at this point now, he's ready to intervene into a very dark, very perverse, very corrupt situation. And he's able to use this broken-hearted maidservant of the Lord. In other words, this is much bigger than Hannah, isn't it? This is much bigger than Hannah. This is God working out his plan in and through her life. Verse 20, so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. And the word Samuel, it's, it's interesting. It means heard of God or asked of God. And so every time Hannah would mention Samuel as a child, no doubt it reminded her of the fact that God had heard her in her brokenness, that he had reached down to her in her time of despair. One of my favorite authors, Alan Redpath, said, when God wants to do the impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. And that's exactly what we see him doing here with Hannah. Now, if we were to continue in chapter 1, we would see that Samuel was born, that around three years of age, they bring him back to that very tabernacle, and they dedicate him to the Lord. And they leave Samuel with Eli in this corrupt priesthood. But I just want to, in closing, I just want to look in chapter 2. And after Hannah has left Samuel behind, I just want to read this, point out a couple quick things as we close. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 together. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. I think she's talking to Penina here. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren have borne seven, and she who, was many, who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. A couple quick observations as we close. Number one, notice, is Samuel ever mentioned in this passage? Do we ever see her mention this child that she's just given back to the Lord? We don't see him, do we? Who do we see? We see the Lord. And we see this broken woman reveling in the matchless worth of God. We also see, when you look in the New Testament, Mary's prayer after she finds out that she's pregnant with the Messiah, mirrors this prayer of Hannah. In fact, if you were to compare the two, they're very similar. And I believe the reason for that is because Hannah, as she praises the Lord, is actually prophesying without even realizing it. And just to point out a couple quick interesting things, in verse 1, when it says, I rejoice in your salvation, 
That word salvation in the Hebrew is Yeshua. As we look in verse 6, we see the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Does that ring a bell for anyone? We see, of course, his power over death and resurrection. In verse 10, it says, He will give his strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Is there a king yet in Israel? No. There's no king yet. No one's been anointed yet. I believe, of course, she's looking forward to the king, the anointed one, the Messiah at this point. But I want us to close in verse 8 and read verse 8 again. It says, He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap. What does that mean? See, some translations, instead of ash heap, they actually say dunghill. And what happened when the priests would offer these sacrifices at the temple, when they would slay the animal and the blood would be shed for the sins of the people, and, or they would be burnt as a burnt offering, they would bring the ashes outside the city to these ash heaps or these dung hills. And these places were like garbage. They were full of garbage and refuse, and they were always outside the city, and the poor people would be gathered there. It would be like a modern-day city seeing burning barrels and garbage everywhere. And the poor would go there to keep warm, and they would also go there uh, to find food amidst all the rubbish. And they would be searching for things among the waste. And what God is saying here is this. Just as it says here, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap. I understand that you guys just finished Hebrews, right? And in Hebrews chapter 13, it says this. We have an altar from which we serve the tabernacle, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. You see, when Jesus died on that cross on Golgotha, he died outside the city. He went outside to the ash heap, so to speak, to where the beggar to where the people who had no resources in them, of themselves were. Why? So that he could lift those people up out of the ash heap. That's the picture that Hannah's painting for us today. It's a picture of the gospel. And God used this broken woman to get such a beautiful glimpse of the glory of what God would do in Christ. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't God amazing? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we look at Hannah and we see what a, what a life, Lord, that in some ways none of us want to live, but yet we want the fruit. And Lord, sometimes we go through suffering, we go through difficulties, and Father, we, we have to surrender to you in those moments. We trust that you know what you're doing, Lord. You're working out your plan in our lives. And God, we desire to bring forth good fruit, Lord. We desire to bring the sacrifice of praise to you this morning. Lord, despite what's going on in our life, good or bad, Father, we realize your love does not depend on our circumstances. Your love does not depend on our situation, Lord. And you demonstrated that love 2,000 years ago on a cross. And we thank you, Father, that you gave your son for us, Lord. He went lower than we could ever go, Lord. And he is raised higher, Lord, than anyone. And at his name, every knee is going to bow, Lord. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is, Lord, to your glory, Father. And we long for that day, Lord. 
But would you use our lives, Father? Would you use us as you used Hannah, Father? Would you use us to leave the fragrance of Christ wherever we go? We pray in Jesus' name. 